I believe that every moment that we come together as a church family to worship the Lord and honor Him is a moment invested in eternity. I believe that. You should see that and sense that in your heart. It's a blessing to look up on the stage and look up in the choir and see new faces of those who God has worked profoundly in their lives. And what's interesting is when God works in your life, you instantaneously have a song and you can't keep it in. You want to sing. You want to lift your voice to the Lord. That's a, a wonderful reminder, but also I'm juking you a little bit to try to get you to see that if you know the Lord and you're saved, you ought to want to sing. Not necessarily joining the choir, but you ought to want to sing to the praises of the glory of the Lord. And the songs that we've heard today should have caused chills of obedience to run up your spine. God, I want to finish well. I want to live for you. The things of this world are all fleeting and passing. And the more we keep our focus on Him, we keep our focus on the things that really matter. Well, we've been in Acts a long time. And some of you are thinking we've been in this little series in Acts for a long time within Acts. And it's how to care for the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. And we're almost, we've almost arrived at that verse. Pay careful attention to yourself, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, we're going to get there, but not today. We'll get there next week. But that's kind of the theme of what we've been preaching on and then we've asked ourselves, God, help us realign ourselves. And many of you have been to a chiropractor, right? I've never been. I think lately with all the driving, I might need to visit one. But the fact is, you go for an adjustment. You hear people say, I need a realignment. I need an adjustment. Well, just as you may need one physically, I can promise you, you need one spiritually. And what this text does for me is to give me ministerial realignment. It helps me focus on What's most important? It's easy for me to get here on Monday morning and the first thing on my mind is, Lord, give me what you would have from your word. And I began to sermonize and I began to think about the visits I have during the week and I began to think about the counseling sessions that are lined out. And it's easy to take our focus off the main thing. It's easy to get busy. We, we all need not that those things are not important, they're vitally important. However, we often need a realignment to understand what is the goal of ministry. Why are we here and what is God doing in our lives and what is the will of God for us? And so when we get to this verse, verses 25 through 27, we've kind of looked back. Paul begins to look back at the ministry among those in Ephesus as he is speaking to the elders and he talks about the exemplary life that he lived before them. He speaks at length about his service before the Lord. Well, I spoke at length about the service before the Lord with humility and with passion that we should serve the Lord. And then we talked about how important it is to proclaim the gospel. Last week, we spoke of trusting the providence of God as Paul began to look forward. Those first three things were kind of looking back uh, to help us all align ourselves with what true ministry is about. And then he begins to look at the here and now. He trusted the providence of God. And then he gives us that incredible Acts 20, 24 verse. Again, every time you read it, 
The chills of obedience should go up and down your spine. God, help me finish well. Help me to think about what is most important in ministry. Help me expend myself for you. To be spent and to expend myself for the cause of the gospel. And Paul said, I don't count, I count my life as something precious. He knew that something was greater than even his own life. And that was being obedient to the call of God. And then finally, we talked about the issue of, uh, again, of treasuring uh, Christ supremely. And today we, we arrive at how Paul viewed his ministry among the people. Uh, I think it's awesome to be able to look into the greatest Christian perhaps that ever lived and to see what he thought about ministry and how it was that God had called him to be faithful. It's interesting that when you get to chapter 21, verse 1, and when we had parted from them. Why is that important to see that pronoun we? Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. You do remember this is volume 2 of a two-part series. Luke and is volume 1. Acts is volume 2. I say that to you to let you know that more than likely Luke, not only, uh, not only did he write the book of Acts, but he's having first-hand knowledge of what has just happened in Miletus. Isn't that incredible? Because the we passages help us to understand that the author of the book is now with them. And they picked up somewhere in Acts, I can't remember what chapter, but we began to see Luke move to the pronoun we, that he is present with them. And I think this is interesting to note that as we start our study together this morning that Luke actually wrote from first-hand experience with what's going on in Acts chapter 20. Now for the reading today, I only have one point. I know that you're going to be discouraged about that. But only one additional point, because it's a, it's a good breaking point until we get to verse uh, 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves. We'll un start to unpack that next week and how important that is for the church today. That is so important. But for our understanding this morning and for our edification, our exhortation, let's begin in verse 25 of the book of Acts, chapter 20. The Bible says, And now, behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. What an interesting statement. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So here's a division today. Be faithful. Be a faithful watchman in the ministry that God gives you. It goes without saying that preachers are called to fulfill a vocational call in the ministry. But it's just not preachers. It's also you. If you're saved today and you hold as the possession of your soul and life the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in Him, then you have a ministry to accomplish and God is calling upon everybody in this room to be a faithful watchman in that area. And you would say, well, I didn't see the word watchman anywhere in there. Just hold on to your hat. You will see it in a few moments. So in verse 25, he's not going to see their faces anymore. He knew this. He's given a farewell address to the Ephesian elders. And we're going to unpack this. I hope you've, you've heard my heart that I believe that the church ought to work 
with a multiplicity of elders. Now, you know, you see me that way. You, you say, well, that's our pastor, elder, overseer, presbyter, or whatever you want to say. But I think our church should function. And we're going to move in that direction of being an elder-led church. Why is that? Because that's what the Bible teaches. Clearly. Paul has invited the elders from Ephesus. Plurality to come to him. And he instructs them. That's coming down the pike one day. Uh, you know, you can't turn a big ship fast. And we're kind of easing around uh, to be a biblical-based church and honor the Lord. But he's, he, he really believes... Potentially, for sure, that he's not going to see their faces anymore. So when you begin to explain your ministry among people, it's kind of heightened when you know that you may go up to Jerusalem. This is pretty serious and you're going to die. Paul really thinks that as he goes to Jerusalem, that's going to be it. And as we noted last week, he's going to write Ephesians and First and Second Timothy to this same group of people. However... He feels like this is the last time that he will see them face to face. So I think it's important to think about dating. Because if you date the book of Acts, it had to be early. Why? Because at this point, Paul is still alive. And Luke is addressing that in that manner. Paul is still living. So Acts has to have an earlier date, no matter what the liberals out there in the world say. Okay? That it has to have an early date. And here's the other thing. Paul knows he's going to pay the ultimate price up in Jerusalem. And so he's willing to seal his testimony with his own blood. And it's interesting. I, Paul says he, he is dead set on going up to Jerusalem. And we talked briefly about how that looks so much like his Lord that he's following. Because Jesus set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. and would not be deterred one bit from accomplishing our salvation for us in Jerusalem so Paul thought, thinks, if I die in Jerusalem, then that's God's will for my life. But if I live, what's his goal then? Well, we know from First and Second Timothy and other places in Acts that he wants to get to Spain. And so his thing is, look, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We're thinking about ministry, right? Be a faithful watchman as you fulfill that ministry God's given you. That ministry may lead you to glory, even today. Uh, for me to live, however, on earth, is to honor Christ with your labor all the way to the end. And if you die, it's gain, folks, because you're going to see Christ face to face. So Paul lived with an incredible amount of purpose and intentionality. Did he not? He, he's always thinking, Lord, if you've got more ministry for me to fulfill, praise the Lord. I'm kind of torn between staying here and going on to glory. But he was intentional. And notice what he's doing in his ministry as he is with them. Do you see it in the passage of Scripture? The Bible says, And behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom. That's what he's been doing as a faithful minister among the people God had called him to minister to. He was proclaiming the kingdom. It's interesting that his connection with the people revolved around a labor which was defined as proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now, do y'all think Paul loved the people? Do you think he had an affinity for the Ephesians? How many years was he there? Three years. The longest span of time that Paul spent with any, with, with any single group of people. And he loved them. 
The section is going to end in sorrow. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken. Think about that, that he wouldn't see their faces again. Think about the relationships that he forged. Think about the certain affinities that he had with the people and how he cherished them. How he'd invested his life with them. But that's not what he talks about. Now get this. You want relationships. You want those affinities. You you want cherished relationships. But when Paul begins to talk about his ministry among those in Ephesus, what he highlights is his his investment in those people concerning the proclamation of the kingdom of God. That's so vital for us to see. Kingdom realities. Can't you hear Paul echoing Luke's sentiments? But seek first the kingdom of God. And all, and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. He's preaching the kingdom. Now I don't think Paul saw himself as a talking head. Just simply disseminating information about the kingdom. And being unapproachable. Uh, and, And I don't think he is was disconnected at all from the people. But I believe that he defined himself as a preacher, according to this text, who preached the kingdom of God to the people. And folks, that is what's most important. That is what's most important, and that's what defined him. At the end of the day, it all boils down to this. If you were to ask Paul, who are you and what are you about? I think he would say, I'm a preacher of the kingdom of God. And Paul went about preaching the kingdom in and out among the people, planting gospel seed and anticipating that they will take care of the business of watering the seed that he had planted. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. And after he makes this statement, he gives this follow-up. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God, and then he says to them, I will not see your face again. And notice how that proclamation of the kingdom goes straight into this therefore. And when you see therefore in the Bible, you've got to find out what it's... You're getting it, right? There's a reason that he says, I'm proclaiming the kingdom. Therefore, the fact that I have proclaimed the kingdom leads to this. I testify solemnly. Now, this is strong in the original language. It's a solemn address to them. In other words, it's a serious declaration that he is about to make. And that testimony is based upon proof. And when he adds to it, solemnly testify this day, he's making it in the Greek language something that's called emphatic. So he sets a solemn tone in the Greek language. I solemnly testify to you on this given day. And he underscores the earnestness of what he's about to say. He's saying it as if he's on trial. And he really is. And so are we. He's saying it as if he's standing before the Bema judgment seat Of Jesus Christ. Which all of us are going to stand there if you're saved. If you're lost, you're going to be before the great white throne judgment. And at that point, there is no turnaround. Period. But if you're saved, you're going to stand before the beam of judgment seat of Christ. And you're going to give an account for every deed done in the flesh, good or bad. And here it's almost like Paul is standing before that. He's before the righteous judge. He said, I'm giving you solemn, serious uh, testimony before the Lord. He knew these people. He loved them. They were friends of his, but in his final address, there is an inescapable tone of earnestness before the people. I think that is interesting. Have you ever read 
sermons from preachers of old? Have you ever taken time to read sermons by Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon? So many different. I I could name tons of preachers. But the glory, I think, of past preachers was their earnestness. Would you all agree? Some of you gray heads are saying, yes, pastor, that's true. This is an, there was an earnestness that we might call gravity. Now, for you kids, you're thinking about what goes up comes down. But gravity can also mean weightiness. Something that's heavy. Something you can sense that there's a passion and a weightiness of what's going on. And I think what we would say about past preachers is when they endeavored, they did so to bring a holy hush upon the people in a worship service. Because there was a, they encountered the Lord in their preaching. It wasn't laced with triviality and, and, and how to influence people and make friends. It was a holy encounter with God. Much like I felt during that psalm they did at the last... Now, some of you clapped, and that's totally fine. I felt like getting on my face before God and not even looking up. It's the way I felt. That, that holy hush and reverence that we ought to have before the Lord. Now, here's the deal. If we endeavor to bring that holy hush upon people today and in a worship service, you're going to be assured that people in our day will say that that church is unfriendly and that church is cold. I can almost imagine... Uh, The fact that if we say, look, let's have the absence of chatter, you would say, well, that means we're going to have a stiff and awkward unfriendliness about our church. Since most of us struggle with having this deep sense of gladness in the holiness of God. Now, check that out. I said we ought to have gladness that springs into us when we think about the holiness of God. And we know why that happens, because Jesus has made all that right. We can have gladness in the holiness of God. It's it's usually, if we talk about a church that we think is alive, we start thinking about chatter, and we start thinking about uh, how that we can be lighthearted, and we can be chipper, and we can be talkative. And we as pastors have absorbed this narrow view of gladness and friendliness. And across the board, we've cultivated a pulpit demeanor of verbal casualness that makes the blood earnestness of past preachers and the solemnity of bringing the people of God, ushering you into the holiness of God, of past preachers, it's very much unthinkable that we can even get to that point today. And that's sad. That is extremely sad. Because we view things so differently today. And you would say, well, pastor, that's because of of the culture. Exactly. And we're supposed to be counter-cultural as a church. Not mean, not stuck up, uh, not biased. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about what happens when we encounter our God. What happens when we exult over the Word, the Holy Word of God. And as we look into it and begin to preach it. So today, the result today is a preaching atmosphere and a preaching uh, that is a style that is somewhat plagued with triviality and levity and carelessness and flippancy and a general spirit of nothing of eternal and infinite proportions is being done or said 
on a given Sunday morning. Boy, I hope that's not true here. And I hope you sense that there is something very important about getting into the Word of God and allowing the, throwing out the chatter, throwing out the whatever you view in your mind as culturally relevant and saying, God Almighty, this is your Word. This is, this is the Word of God and a worship service ought to be just that. We're not coming here with our attitudes and our agendas that are first and foremost. It's called worship for a reason. It's to the Lord who's worthy of our worship. And folks, I've got news for you. God has spoken and He is not silent. And what He said is in this book. Right here. From Genesis to Revelation. And I dare say God has nothing to say to us that's not written in this book. And in these last days, Hebrews 1, He has spoken to us through His Son. Isn't that awesome to think about that? But here's the deal. Kind of an aside. I know I chased a rabbit. When Paul brought these elders together, it wasn't for a little chit-chat, was it? There is a sense of gravity and weightiness into what he would have to say. Don't you believe there was a blood earnestness about his tone? Don't you think Paul was serious when he brought this out? He didn't attempt to lighten the moment by telling this neat little story. He, he didn't introduce everything by saying, let me knock the edges off of I'm not accountable for any man's blood. I, I, he didn't try to put a little sugar on it so that it would be easier to swallow. He just tells them straight out front what this blood earnestness is about. He wants them to feel the gravity of the moment. And the gravity of the moment is because of what Paul was going to say. I testify to you that I am clean or innocent of the blood of all men. Do you hear this kind of stuff on TV? I mean, just think about it. Follow some of the hair dudes, you know. Follow some of the guys on TV who are, are really hirelings that are padding their wallets with absorbent amount of money, which is a sham and a scam, and how pitiful is that, to sell Jesus for money. But we know that's happening in our world. But when's the last time you heard this solemn declaration where a pastor stood and said, I want you to know something. I've preached the whole counsel of God to you. And I want to testify to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. That's not popular preaching, folks. It's not popular to think about that. And I testify to you that I am clean or innocent of the blood of men. doesn't sound like friendly, outgoing language to start talking about blood and accountability. And how is it that Paul could be held accountable for the blood of those he's preached to? So... Paul says, you won't see my face anymore, but I went among you preaching the kingdom. I solemnly testify to you. Not that I loved you and I hate to be torn apart from you, but I loved you enough to tell you that I'm innocent of your blood. Wow. Does that catch anybody like it catches me? You, know, you would think in our day, well, I just hate to be torn away from you. I'm going to miss you. You're my friend. That's all good, but that's not what's most important. The most important thing as a minister labors among the people is to be able to say to them, i got a clean conscience that I preach the whole counsel of God and I'm innocent of your blood. Ooh. Think that's a loving statement? When Paul would say, I'm innocent of your blood. Well, I would tell you that that is infinitely more loving than if Paul would have said, I can't bear to leave you guys. Right? 
Ultimately, the most loving thing we can do for people is to give them the truth with blood earnestness. That's the most loving thing we can do. The language free from the blood of all men comes from a book in the Bible. Does anybody know where it comes from? I'll scream it out there and make us all look bad. Come on. Do you know where it comes from? It comes from Ezekiel. Thus, if you're a student of the Bible, you know now where watchman comes from. All right? You putting this together? When Paul says this, he is giving us a direct quote from a couple of places in the book of Exodus, uh, Ezekiel. Sorry, And I'm going to beat you there because I marked mine, but make your way to Ezekiel. All right? Let me read a couple of passages that tell us about this watchman. Free from the blood of all men comes from Ezekiel. Now, when you look at the ministry of Ezekiel, you'd say, well, oh Lord, you put this man through the ringer. You asked this guy to do some weird things. But here's what we know about him. He was a man of God who did what God asked him to do. Didn't apologize for it. He did exactly what God called him to do. Now, again, to see the seriousness of the message, clean or free from the blood of all men, notice what the Lord tells Ezekiel and commissions him. First, chapter 3, beginning in verse 16 of the book of Ezekiel. Love to hear the pages turn. The Bible says, or you can scroll, right? You can scroll, whatever it takes. Verse 16, and at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, check this out. And if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin. And his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. Chapter 33, beginning in verse 1. How y'all doing? Y'all awake? All right. Chapter 33, verse 1. The Bible says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and he did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, i.e. Ezekiel, I have made a watchman for, for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. 
If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to, to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from the way, from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered his soul. For, it, for Ezekiel, the watchman imagery was the, was the defining role that Ezekiel was given. What marked Ezekiel's ministry was a life or death responsibility. God said, this is your commission. Life or death. What a commission. Life or death. The watchman's role was... A matter of life and death, not only for himself, but also for those who heard. And again, when he says, I will require the blood from your hand, and Paul uses it, this is a legal declaration and or legal terminology that holds a person either as innocent or guilty dependent on his responsibility that should have been fulfilled. Right? So it reminds us that what Paul says here is serious business. There's blood earnestness to what Paul is saying to the elders who are going to be the ones leading the churches that are in Ephesus. So it's serious business for those who hear and for those who are called to warn. So the emphasis in these sections is not so much the fate of the respective parties or even the justice of God's verdict. The emphasis is upon the watchman. Y'all catching that? It's upon the watchman. Only by fulfilling his duty of warning those that God told him to warn, would he preserve his integrity? He will not share in the guilt of the wicked person or the backsliding of a righteous one. Notice there's two things going on here. But if he fails to give warning, he, either he will be held accountable for the judgment they suffer, and of course they will be held accountable no matter what, they are to blame for their own guilt, but he is to blame for his own failure not to do what God called him to do, to warn them. So, provided he does warn them, he himself will save his life. What governs their fate is their own wickedness or righteousness. Get that clear. What governs the watchman's fate is simply whether he fulfills his duty or posting that God has given him to fulfill. He's not based. He's not judged based on whether he is successful in persuading the wicked to repent or dissuading you today if you're a backslider and you won't repent. The, the preacher's not held responsible. He is judged solely on whether he was faithful to give the warning. Right? When Paul says, I am free or clean of the blood of all men, what he is saying is, I've done my duty, folks. Man, how convicting is that to a pastor? Oh God, can we say to you, I've done my duty. I've fulfilled my calling. I've warned as you've asked me to warn. I've blown the trumpet. I've exhorted the way you've asked me to exhort. I've called people to repentance and faith. I wasn't shy about talking about the realities of heaven and hell. I have a good conscience that everyone has heard from my lips that judgment will befall them if they don't turn and repent and believe the gospel. Now folks, is this sobering stuff or what? Now, unless you just say you don't believe the Bible, you better say this is very serious and absolutely very sobering. The reason this is true is because Paul 
had declared to them the whole counsel of God. I mean, how could Paul say, I'm free from the blood of all men? How, how could he say that? Well, he could say that because if you back up in the text, the Bible says he had preached the whole counsel of God. That's amazing to even consider that. And, of course, people have thrown stuff out there and conjecture about what that actually means. But he could say to these Ephesian elders, I did not shrink back. He was faithful. He was courageous. His major goal was not to make friends and influence people. His major goal was to preach the truth. He did it at all costs. And he did not shrink back. You ever think, for instance, that Paul made people angry when he preached? Did he ever have conflict when he preached the word of God? Not the opinions of man. You know, we love to hear the opinions of man. I think this, I don't care what you think. You know, I want to know what you know. Don't tell me what you think. Tell me what the Bible says. The worst way to ever lead a Sunday school class is to ask the Sunday school members, what do you think this means? If you don't know what this means when you're teaching it, you don't need to be teaching. Are y'all with me? The worst thing you can ever do is have a free-for-all with everybody in the class giving their opinion what the Bible says. No, the Bible only has one interpretation, period. Now, it has many applications, but a text can never mean what it never meant. And we need to find out what it means. And that's why you've got people who study the Word and look at the original and find out throughout the entire scope of the Scripture the whole counsel of God. Not a proof text, but the whole counsel of God. What does it mean from Genesis to Revelation? Every word has a place in a sentence. Every sentence has a place in a paragraph. Every paragraph has a place in a pericope. And every pericope has a place inside of a book of the Bible. And every book of the Bible is listed inside of the other books of the Bible. Genesis to Revelation. Whole counsel of God. Maybe that's what Paul meant. Amen? When he said, I preach to you the whole counsel of God, I did not shrink back. It caused conflict. Yes, it did. Did it make Paul uncomfortable at times? Well, I'd say yes. But he didn't shrink back. He declared the whole counsel of God. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, he could say... I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's good stuff, isn't it? He would later say in Colossians 1 that He admonished them and taught them with all wisdom, building every man up in Christ Jesus. And I take the whole counsel of God primarily to mean that Paul took the entire Old Testament and he ran to Jesus with it. And he showed how Christ was the fulfillment of all the Scriptures. In other words, when we preach the Word, we preach Christ Centered scriptures. Always. From Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of the Bible. In Revelation 22, we preach Christ-centered scriptures. I take, again, it all was fulfilled in Christ. When we come together, Paul would say, I wasn't interested in giving you seven hints on how to get along with people at work. I wasn't interested in giving you seven hints about how to survive life with your spouse. Y'all got seven hints y'all give me? No, I'm kidding. I mean, what did Paul do? He didn't proof text. He, he, he let the Word of God hit the need of the heart. Don't you think God knows better what you need than you do? I mean, how do you fix a marriage? Well, let's let the Word of God tell us. Not seven good hints. How to influence people and make friends. Let's let the Word tell us how to do it. 
Well, why would Paul feel the need to say that he didn't shrink back from doing this? I think because at times when you're preaching the Word of God uh, straightforward, there's some rebuking going on and there's some reproving going on. And what are we by nature? Well, we're sinners. And when, when the Word of God is given to us, if we're not in full compliance and obedience, right, then we're like, whew, don't want to hear it. It collides with the mind and the heart. You know, God's intent is to get up under your skin and hit you in the heart. And He does that through the proclamation of the Word. Why? Because the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. There's no safe place on the sword. It cuts both ways. It's going to get you. If you're a believer, it's going to get you. And if God is calling you into salvation, it's going to get you. Either way, it's going to get you. So I think Paul had to say this because we don't like reproof. Even though Proverbs says you're a fool if you don't take reproof, we don't like it. We don't like to be reproved by the word. Do you remember what Amos said? He said, they hate those who reprove them at the gate. So Paul knew that his most important thing that he could possibly do was preach the whole counsel of God and preach it unapologetically. He had no attempt to make it nicer or more palatable. His job was to preach the Word, not to put a little sugar on it. Uh, There are many portions in the Word of God that are so sweet. I go to prepare a place for you. If not so, I would have told you. Isn't that awesome? I mean, some places are so sweet in the Word of God. And what do we do? We preach the sweetness of the Scripture. But I want to tell you something. Some passages are very bitter. And they're hard. They've got jagged edges. And Paul did not try to break off the jagged edges. Nor did he try to sprinkle in a little bit of sugar to coat it so that it's easy for us to swallow. It's not what he does. He preached it as it was at all times. And because he did this, look folks, listen to me. Everybody listen. Because he did this, he could say to them, I am innocent of the blood of men. I didn't cut corners. Didn't pare the corners. I I preached the word. Now here's the deal. I'm preaching to myself and you, so you understand a little bit behind who I am. First, a preacher's temptation is to not preach consecutive expositionally. You know what that means? A preacher's number one temptation is to get up in the pulpit and preach a topical sermon. That means I sit in my office and I think, "Mm, this Sunday I'm preaching on love. So we got to start in John 3.16. And we need to add in, beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God. And you preach about love, grabbing a verse from all over the Bible. You know, that's the temptation that pastors have to deal with. So the first commitment a preacher has to make is to preach the word. Not topical. Skyscraper preaching, jumping from story to story. But we make a commitment that we're going to preach the word the way God has given it to us. It's given to us this way for a reason. But here's the other thing. If you commit to it, you cannot say, well, this week, and some of you who read your Bible are going to know what I'm talking about. This week, we're going to skip from Hebrews 3, uh, 6, 3, and we're going to pick back up in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. Let's skip all seven verses about, well, if we fall away, a preacher of the word won't skip it. Preacher of the Word will preach it with conviction. He'll tell you exactly what it says with his best effort to interpret what the Word of God has to say. So, you know around here now, if I skip a section, something's missing with me. That pastor, he's scared to say something. He don't want to deal with a certain part of Scripture. 
Well, it's easier to take bigger chunks of Scripture and to fly over the Scripture a little higher. And that way, you never let, uh, you never let yourself down to ground level. You don't deal with what's in the Scripture. That way, you can get away with, with less discriminatory preaching. Hmm. That's the easier way to go, correct? With that kind of preaching, people won't get peeved at you as much. If you preach topically, if you do a 30,000 foot flyover, everybody goes, wow, look at the airplane. Now let's go home. That was sweet and good. As a matter of fact, man, you did a great job, teacher. You took a difficult passage that I was concerned about. Now I'm leaving feeling good about it. Hello? Does that accomplish anything according to the whole counsel of God? Folks, if you never get down into the word, then you're not preaching the whole counsel of God. Period. There's emphasis here. Paul said, I preached the whole council. Folks, do you know that there's not a piece of literature in this world that is antithetical and as discriminatory as the Bible? I mean, just come on, folks. It doesn't take long to read that to say that the Bible discriminates between the righteous and the wicked, between the saved and the lost. It's discriminatory. And we don't need to try to blunt what the Bible says by a flyover mission. We're, we're way over the top of it, so everybody feels okay. But Paul preached line by line, precept by precept. And he tried to drive it home with application. By the way, preaching without attempting to apply it is not preaching at all. Application is where the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, gets under your skin, and hits you in the heart. And we need it, don't we? The preacher's not the only one that needs that. I think the people he preaches to needs it. As well, So Paul did not shrink back. What we see from Paul is this faithful watchman who had a clear conscience. He preached the word boldly. As a result, he had a clear conscience before God and the ones he served. Now this is not only applicable for the pastor, it's also applicable for us. I want to remind you, if you are in possession of the Holy Spirit of God, and Jesus lives in your life, and he is the king of your heart, and you have the truth of the gospel in you, then you have a responsibility as a watchman. Okay? The very same standard of the watchman in Ezekiel and Paul was held, is held up for us. The same standard of which we are all held to. There are people around you every single day who need to be warned. There are people that need to hear the gospel. If they die, they go to hell. If they don't know Jesus. And of course, they're accountable and they justly deserve the fact that they rejected the gospel. They deserved, I know that, I get it. But we're responsible for their blood if we don't warn them. And just think about how the weight of this with you standing beside a coworker every day at work. Think about the weightiness of this as you're trying to work in a school system. And this is true nationally, not just in Ozark, but you're going to get censored if you tell the truth. That's hard, folks. Isn't it hard? Man, it's hard to be on a job. And know that if you open your mouth about the gospel to this co-worker, that you may lose your job. But I'm telling you folks, there's something bigger here. Their blood may be on your head and in your hands. I tell you, this is more important to fulfill here than worrying about what your neighbor says or your co-worker says. We have a responsibility before the Lord. Now there's a practical uh, way to handle this and to do it. But folks, the, the lesson is clear, I think, that we have a responsibility. What if they die and go to hell without hearing from you? 
The most important thing is that the word goes forth in the power of the Spirit today and God is glorified and that eternal good is done for the souls of men and women. That's what we need. That's what's most important. Period. So, let me give you a couple points of application. Uh, what time? Ooh, you got time for this real quick. You ought to pray for your pastor and for anyone who stands in this pulpit and preaches the word that they would do so with blood earnestness and an ever-present consciousness of the realities of heaven and hell every time they preach. Is that fair to say, folks? I mean, I am encouraged so often by you. A little text here, a little email here. Just thank you for preaching the word. You don't know what that means to your pastor. Uh, you better be careful because the more you put it on me, push me, push me, it's going to come harder, right? But I ought to preach with that blood earnestness that it's not all about, always about chatter and being talkative and, and having fun. That's okay. If you've been around me, you know I like to have fun. I'm going to give you, for your Missouri word, static, just like you give me static. But folks, when it's all, when it's all said and done, there are some things that are, we traffic in holy things. There are eternal ramifications to what's happening here on Sunday. And I am so thankful. I can't tell you the difference I sense walking in this building from the first time I walked in it. I can't tell you the difference. It's, it's amazing to see the difference of the choir singing and people responding. I'm telling you, I wish we had a video the first couple of months I was here. But I'm telling you, it's not me. It's the Word. The Word of God changes lives. And if you listen to the Word and take it in, and re- that's the second thing, by the way, you've got to receive the Word. Pray for your pastor. Blood earnestness. Always before my mind, I'm thinking, heaven and hell. This is serious. Okay? Second, just pray for your own reception to the Word. We ought to rejoice when there's mercy given in the Bible. We ought to exalt God when we see grace. But you ought to heed the warnings too. It's not just for the person you're sitting next to. Correct? It's for all of us. Hell is not just a reality for maybe the person sitting beside you. It's a reality to all those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Heaven and hell is a reality. Third, you need to be a faithful witness in the ministry God's given you. Have a courageous life to speak the truth. That's a good application, isn't it? We get that from there. Innocence of the blood of others requires that we know the truth. Now, we're good as Baptists to know the truth, but it also requires that we speak it. To be innocent of the blood of others, we need to know the truth, and we need to speak the truth of the Word of God. Both are necessary. Both are essential. I close with this anecdote from Charles Spurgeon. He once said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. Son, if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Let no one go there unwarned or unprayed for. Father, help us. Lord, help me. Give me a seriousness and a blood earnestness. Lord, not to be detached from people. God, we've got to be. We've already seen that from Paul. He lived among them. Lord, he was part of them. Worked beside them. Loved them. Spent time with them. But he also knew the seriousness of the kingdom that he proclaimed. He knew the seriousness of blood upon his own hands for not warning 
God, we blow the trumpet today to those who don't know you. We blow the trumpet and we say to them, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We declare to them that the wages of sin is death. But we declare to them that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We declare to them that we have all sinned and we've fallen short. But we know that Lord Jesus, you took our sin upon yourself. Bore it in your body upon the tree and nailed it there. So that we could be saved. And all the way through the book of Acts, Paul and Peter are preaching, repent and believe. Turn to Jesus. Move from a place of unbelief to belief. God, would you have that happen today for those who are lost? Maybe, Lord, for the righteous. Maybe for those who are saved. They need to be reminded that they're going off the wrong way. We have a responsibility to warn them to turn back to the truth. We have a responsibility. God, we say that to those who may be backsliding. Lord, I pray that you would touch their hearts and draw them back to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.